0: Go ahead and grab your Bibles as you are seated and turn with me to Acts chapter 12. We're going to continue right along with our uh, study on that first Christian church in the first century. We're going to read the entire chapter today, and so bear with me as we read. There's 25 verses, and I hope to walk through all of it. Um, It fits together nicely, though. Uh, Acts chapter 12, once again, starting in verse 1. Luke writes about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Also, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending, after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came up to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had departed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. Through the preaching of your word now, would you help us to put you in the proper place, on your throne? And would we bow before such throne? We know and believe that you reign from your heavenly throne, but too often, Father, we attempt to take you off that throne in our hearts and our minds. And so we ask, Father, that your Spirit would help us to know you in this moment and to help us understand your will and your ways and your kingship and your glory, Father. We know this is impossible to know without the movement of your Spirit. And so would your Spirit guide us and draw us to you. And in your Son, Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. One day, as Jesus was traveling with his closest disciples to Jerusalem, they were making a journey, and they were striking up conversation. And uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus called them the sons of thunder, right? They they had a request for Jesus. They came up to Jesus and um, approached him with a question. They said, you know, Jesus, we, we know that you have told us in the past that if we ask anything in your name, you'll, you'll give it to us. And so, Jesus, we figured it doesn't hurt to ask. We've got a request. Would you do something for us? And Jesus says, well, what would you like me to do for you? And James and John said, well, Jesus, when you're in your glory, when you're sitting on your throne, we... Would you maybe just let us sit by your side? Can we sit to your left, one of us, and the other to to your right? Let us share in that glory. You see, James and John, they had been following Jesus for about three years to this point, and they heard about his teaching. And they heard about God's kingdom being at hand, and they believed that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the coming king. He knew, they they believed that he was the Messiah they had waited for to liberate Israel from the Romans. And they knew that the, the day that God's kingdom would come, Jesus would take the throne, and they wanted a piece of that. They wanted a piece of that glory, and so they asked Jesus for this request. What they're doing is they're marking their territory, right? They're lobbying for premier positions in the kingdom of God. They're essentially asking Jesus, Jesus said, we want to be vice president and secretary of the state. We want to be sitting by you when you come into your glory. Now, I could imagine that Jesus may have chuckled a little bit, when he responded to them, because they still had no idea what all of this meant. They, they had not a clue. They had no idea that in a matter of days after that conversation, Jesus would be crucified. And so Jesus tells James and John, Oh, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea. Do you really want to sit on my, my right and my left in my moment of glory? can you drink this cup that I drink? Essentially, uh, in other words, can you face the same fate that I face? And they responded, well, yes, Lord, of course we can. Yes, we can take your cup. And then Jesus somberly replies, you will. You will drink the cup that I drink. Basically saying you will face Death, As I go to death and face death for the cause of the kingdom of God, you too will face death for the kingdom of God. We come to Acts 12 and we actually find those words, the, the fulfillment of those words for James as King Herod puts him to death by his violent hands. As we begin to put some flesh on this passage, it's important to note that these first verses in Acts 12 really are a reminder to us that Jerusalem is not a pleasant place for a believer in this time period. If you recall, back in Acts 7, when we were there, we had this character Stephen, and Stephen preached the gospel to the Jews, and they didn't like it so much that they ended up killing him for it. But the persecution didn't stop there. It actually, uh, Stephen's death served as a catalyst for further persecution throughout the larger church in Acts chapter 8. Uh, now, Stephen was martyred anywhere between about 33 or 36 AD. And so if you're trying to keep track at home and you're trying to figure out kind of where we are, our passage today is about uh, 44 AD. Okay, so think about that. Uh, for the last 7 to 10 years, the church has been under intense persecution, the threat of persecution in Jerusalem. They are in this state of hostility, and we have a few hints in these first verses that the persecution is actually growing more intense as the years go by. Because here's why. It's getting worse based on who is getting persecuted, but it is also getting worse based on who is doing the persecution. For the believers in the first century, the scope of persecution is expanding. Here's what we know. Back in Acts chapter 8, once again, verse 1, we read about this outbreak of persecution and how it started. And this is what verse 1 says, that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You know, we get the picture that the, the, the church is so scared that they scatter, but for some reason, the apostles don't need to scatter yet. Ever since Stephen was martyred, the Jews are out to get Christians. However, to this point, the Christian leaders, the apostles, go untouched. They may be facing persecution, but they haven't felt that threat or haven't been put to death yet. It seems as though maybe they have some sort of immunity or maybe the Jews are too afraid to go after the apostles, the leaders of this movement at this point, or perhaps the apostles are just protected better. I don't know. But we just know that for several years, the leaders of this Christian movement were not put to death. But then we come to Acts chapter 12. And we find the severity of the issue increases as James, who's one of the 12 apostles, finally drinks the cup that Jesus predicted he would 10 years prior. And once again, it's not only getting worse based on who is persecuted, but also who is doing and implementing the persecution. After Stephen was killed, it was only the Jews that persecuted the Christians for some time. It was Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, who sought them out and dragged them out of their homes. But now we're introduced to King Herod. and King Herod is a Roman king who's over the nations of Judea and Samaria. He is the one that laid violent hands on some who belonged in the church to to, to James as well. The Christians are now receiving undesirable attention, not just from Jews, but from Rome, which is a much higher authority in this context. Now, before we move on, a quick word on King Herod and who this guy is. You'll hear that name several times throughout the New Testament. There were a lot of different King Herods that refer to different people, because this was a dynasty name of of some sorts. Uh, Let me be clear, this is not the same King Herod that ruled this area when Jesus was born. That King Herod is is dead. He's been long gone for several decades at this point. Um, This King Herod is actually that King Herod's grandson. In, In history, we would actually know him as King Herod Agrippa I. And he was given the land of Judea and Samaria in 41 AD under the rule of Emperor Claudius because it was Roman territory at the time. And we actually know a great deal about this King Herod, thanks in part to the work of uh, Josephus. If you don't know who Josephus is, I would strongly encourage you to familiarize yourself with him. Uh, Josephus was a first century historian who was actually Jewish that later defected to Rome. His work primarily recorded Jewish history with a special emphasis on the relationship between the Jews and the Romans. And it's fascinating because Josephus is not a believer. He is not a disciple of Jesus. But his work actually helps corroborate our scripture. Now, according to Josephus, Agrippa was quite popular with the Jewish population that he ruled over. He actually used his own wealth to help fortify Jerusalem's borders and walls. Um, there was a, a previous emperor, Emperor Caligula, that he actually stood up against on behalf of the Jewish people. Uh, emperor Caligula, he wanted to build a statue in his honor in Jerusalem for emperor worship. And King Herod Agrippa actually went to him and, and essentially asked him not to do it. And the emperor listened to him. And so King Herod is is well with the Jewish people, and his reputation with that nation shouldn't come as a surprise to us when we read in verse three that he arrested Peter specifically because he saw that James's execution pleased the Jews. That that was his motivation. We don't necessarily know the the motivation for why he um, arrested and executed James, but we do know his motivation for arresting Peter was because it made the Jewish people happy. This is why he arrested Peter, to keep up his image in front of them. He wants them to give him praise. He wants them to give his glory. He's just eating it up. And so he locks up another Christian leader during the Passover, no less. You know, that's what the the festival, the the days of unleavened bread. It's the Passover that Peter is arrested, and it's incredibly ironic here because at the Passover the Jewish people would actually be celebrating uh, God's intervention and the deliverance of their nation when they were in bondage to Egypt, and now you have Peter. Who brings another message of deliverance. He's telling them that God has intervened through Jesus so that we may be delivered from the bondage of our sin. And they throw him in prison because of it. Now with it being Passover, they couldn't kill him quite yet until the Passover was, the festival was over. And so they secured him in jail with four squads of soldiers to guard him. These squads would have consisted of four soldiers in each squad. So there's there's 16 soldiers all together over his watch. And each squad would get a three-hour time frame or a time slot to guard Peter. And this was to ensure that they would be alert and awake and, 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 and well of mind. Um, two of them out of the four would be guarding the prison doors, both on each sides. And the other two, we get the picture that Peter is actually chained to the other two guards. He's not chained to the walls, but his arms are actually chained to, to the other soldiers. And we get a very bleak picture. And that's what these first four verses are for. It's to really set us up for the next part of the story. Between James's death and Peter securely behind bars, this situation is very bleak for the Christian community. This is a fairly desperate situation, and Peter does—it it doesn't seem like there's any hope for him. It's going to take an act of God to redeem this situation. But the church knows this. Because while Peter is in prison, the church earnestly or fervently prays to God. I can't stress enough how important the role of intercessory prayer is in this passage. Intercessory prayer is essentially going to God on behalf of somebody else. It's praying for somebody else's needs. And it's very clear that intercessory prayer is the catalyst for Peter's miraculous escape. It seems as though that the church intercedes on behalf of Peter, and then God intercedes on behalf of the church because he answers their prayer by sending an angel. And it takes us to the final night before Peter's execution, which just only adds to the drama of the situation. The, the clock is ticking for Peter. He's down to hours before he would be executed, and um, we find that he's sleeping. Now, I don't know how one can sleep the night he's to be executed, but it possibly may speak of Peter's peace that he's found in Christ in both life or death. Peter seems to be content with whatever is going to happen, but then all of a sudden, a light, a bright light shines, and an angel appears, and he kind of, he kind of nudges Peter. It says that he strikes him on his side; he gives him a good punch to the side, saying, "Hey, Peter, get up!" It's kind of like if you have teenagers at home and it's time to get up for school, right? You walk in, you just punch them to the side. It's time to get up. Say, Come on, Peter, let's go, right? We're, we're busting this popsicle stand. And then he, and then he very much leads peter on his way and you notice how once peter wakes up how passive of a role that he plays in all of this the, the, the angel just keeps giving him commands and peter just nonchalantly follows his instructions and says all right well i'll do this and i'll do that and before you know it they're out on the street you see, you've seen movies like this before, right? With prison breaks, where there's great prison breaks. And in the movie, there's always some kind of mastermind who's orchestrating the plan in the background. He's orchestrating the whole thing. And there's typically always like this foreign object that they've snuck in somehow that they use in a very clever and creative way. And then there's also always some kind of trickery involved with the guards and, and make, it makes them look like fools. And then you get to the end of the movie as they've made their escape out of prison and your mind is just blown because they pulled it off and it was amazing and it was this grandmaster plan that unfolded and you just loved watching it and you come to Acts chapter 12 and it's nothing like that. This is rather boring actually, right? Because there's this fascinating simplicity to Peter's prison break. There is no plan. There are no tools. There is no trickery involved. Peter just walks out. Every single obstacle in the way is just taken care of without any real effort. The shackles just kind of fall off. The prison door just kind of opens up on its own. They, they It says that they walk right past the guards as if nothing was, was, was happening. They just get up and they walk out. The implication that we get is that the soldiers have fallen into some kind of uh, supernaturally induced sleep. They're totally unaware of what's happening. And not only that, in the simplicity of this, we see Peter who's fast asleep when the, when the angel arrives, he contributes absolutely nothing in this prison break. Peter has nothing to offer in this situation. In fact, he is so delirious from having just woken up that he's not even sure if this is real or not. He he thinks this is a vision. He's sitting there thinking, man, this is one of the strangest dreams I've ever had. But eventually he's on the outside. He's on the street. And he finally fully wakes up. He has finally a clear mind and he's determined exactly what has happened. Here's the kicker. He stands there having offered nothing in this prison break and says, now I am sure. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me because this escape came so easily. And because he had nothing to offer in the situation, Peter knows without a doubt that this was done by the power of God. There is no logical explanation. The situation was bleak and dire. There was no plan. But where human plans are absent, God's plans shine through. And often, God intervenes. As God intervenes, he does it in a way uh, that is shocking. He does it by means that are that come so far out of left field, that seem to come so far beyond human reason, anything that a human being can imagine. He, he does it so that we may rightfully give him the glory and say, I brought nothing to the table, but God, but God stepped in. He wants to ensure that there are no other means by which we are delivered, than by his own glorious hand. This particular deliverance is so shocking that as Peter goes to a house that's hosting a church, no one believes he's actually there. And he knocks on the gate, and a little servant girl named Rhoda, who which means rosebud or little rose, you get this implication that it's just this little girl she hears and recognizes his voice. And this little girl is then filled with so much joy that she accidentally leaves Peter outside. So she forgets to let him back in. And she's so excited and so full of joy that she just wants to, to rush and tell everybody else about it. Uh, what we have in this girl, this frantic girl, is the type of emotion that accompanies God's saving grace, the shocking Grace of God. This is a giddy kind of joy. And all the people who are earnestly praying for Peter's deliverance, it actually shows how little faith they actually have. Because what do they say to her? Rhoda, you're delirious. You don't know what you're talking about. You must be seeing things. In their mind, Rhoda is irrational. They refuse to accept the possibility that Peter has escaped. Because after all, James was put to death. So how on earth would Peter be able to escape? Rhoda, however, is insistent. So they go to the door and sure enough, Peter is there in the flesh. And then Peter makes it very clear once again that it was God who delivered him, who brought him out of prison. Peter wanted them to know and he would want us to know, God is the author of my deliverance. And in this moment, God would have been glorified for his graciousness to Peter. We get a final picture of the church together and giving praise and glory to God uh, where it belongs, which brings us back to the character of King Herod, who's taken a back seat a little bit to this point. Um, he's very much in this passage represented as the opposite of Peter, where the church gives praise and glory to God. Herod does nothing of the sort. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of the details in this passage in these final verses, but I want to focus specifically on the events surrounding Herod's death. After he offs the soldiers for allowing Peter to escape, uh, we're told that Herod travels to Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea. And at this time, there is some kind of embargo in place between Judea and these two Phoenician port cities Tyre and Sidon they, these cities depend on Judea and depend on trading and for whatever reason uh, Judea is not giving them support they, they are not trading with them right now and so they go to this guy whose name is Blastus he's the king's chamberlain he's essentially King Herod's chief of staff and they convince him hey strike a deal with us because we're, we're dying here Right? we need your support we need your help and they come to an agreement and once they come to an agreement Herod proceeds to give a public speech to commemorate this new arrangement and after the speech the crowd calls out to King Herod and then saying this King Herod he is more than a man no this this man is a god this man is a god and Josephus's account of King Herod's death he writes that Herod wore a robe that was made out of, of all silver and that it, it gleamed uh, magnificently in the sunlight and everybody was impressed in the crowd at how glorious this king looked. And so based on how Herod, what Herod looked like and what he sounded like, they're giving him a bunch of praise and a bunch of glory. Now, if you recall, there's been a couple of times throughout Acts where the apostles are called gods and people bow to them. And every single time, they always reflect that praise and glory back to God and specifically to Jesus as God, but not Herod. Herod soaks it all up. Herod is saying, yeah, keep it coming. I like that. Keep calling me God. Give me all the praise. Give me all the glory. And then in that moment, immediately, he's struck by an angel of the Lord. Remember, there's contrast here. Peter was struck so that he may be delivered. Herod was struck so that he might die. As God was the author of Peter's deliverance. God is also the author of Herod's demise. This is no coincidence. It just says it's clear that God extends mercy to Peter. It's clear that God extends judgment to Herod. God's hand is involved with both the act of mercy and the act of judgment. According to Josephus, King Herod immediately felt a violent pain in his heart and in his stomach. And as people were praising him, uh, Herod felt this pain and he screamed out the words, I, whom you call a God, am now under sentence of death. Herod understands in this moment his mortality. Josephus then records that he went on and died five days later. If that's true, the word immediately here in our text um, doesn't refer to his death, but actually refers to his disease, right? The immediacy of him being struck down by an angel of the Lord, the immediacy of his pain and his, his stomach and his heart of his illness. We don't know exactly how he died, but to say that he was consumed by wor- worms, that leads us to believe that he suffered a very severe and very painful death. One commentator suggests that it may have been through infection by intestinal roundworms. If that's the case, here you have further irony as a man who appeared to be glorious and was soaking up all the glory on the outside was rotting of worms on the inside. He won the praise and glory of man only to become food for the worms. Immediately after Luke records Herod's death, we're told in verse 24, but Herod died, his time was over, but the word of God increased and multiplied. This is our application, and there's really two important lessons to be learned here. First, we have to know that God will have his way. And second, God will have His glory. God will have His way, and God will have His glory. There's meant to be contrast here with this whole passage. Here we have a king who came up against God's way, and came up against God's glory, and for a moment there, it looked like he was winning. He killed James. He has Peter in prison on death row, and he's receiving all the praise. But by the end of the passage, ironically enough, he's the one in the grave. But God's word continues to flourish. And with this, because God will have his ways, we must trust in God's sovereign way. It would be easy to read this and suggest that, well, if I am for God, he will deliver me from pain and persecution every time like he did with Peter. But this would be a failure to the scripture. Because if that's the case, what do you do with James? Was James not a faithful disciple? Was he not a follower of Christ? He he was. So clearly this isn't trying to communicate the message that because Peter was faithful to God, uh, God delivered him. No, what this is trying to communicate is that Peter had more to do, that God had more work for Peter and he would not be stopped. And God's sovereignty, he allowed James to die an honorable death. And in about 20 years later, he would allow Peter to also die an honorable martyred death. But ultimately, God will have the last word. And if it seems as though that he doesn't have the last word, that only means that the last word is yet to be said. This is the mystery of God's providence. And this passage really shows us that this life is not about us and our ways. It's about God's ways and his purposes and God will have his way. And if you try and get in the way of God's purposes, you will ultimately fail. Not only will you fail, you will face judgment as Herod did. And so let's learn a lesson from Herod's grave. The only true way to submit ourselves to God and his ways and his purposes and his glorious sovereignty is to ascribe all the glory to him. Because not only will God have his way, but he will also have his glory. You have Herod, this king in power who wins the praise and glory from man and in turn tries to steal such glory from God. You see, as believers, we should strive to put ourselves in the position of Peter and James who lived and died unto God to give him all the glory. But if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, too many times I posture myself more like Herod than I do Peter and James. Even so, we sound like James and John when they were walking with Jesus. But too many times we say, Jesus, we want a little bit of that glory. That looks great. Can you give us some of that? Can I can I sit by you so people can look at me and and I, and I can just kind of just share your glory a little bit? Well we sit there and we're like Herod and, and we say, This is great. Keep it coming, keep praising me, keep glorifying me. We try and give ourselves glory that rightfully belongs to God because too often we are only looking out for ourselves. This reminds me of a children's book that I read to my children often. It's called Full Moon Rising. It's not full moon, it's fool, F-O-O-L, Fool Moon Rising. It's a cute little book, but it tells a very uh, important lesson it teaches. And um, it begins with a little boy telling the story of the moon showing off only to recognize where his glory was coming from. And I want to read to you just the beginning of the book, and then we're going to skip over and read the end of the book. This is how the story starts. I heard a cosmic story and wondered if it's true. The moon was stealing glory, and this is what he'd do. He bragged each night that his great might could make the darkness flee. And like a kite, he scaled the heights and said, Hey, look at me. The pompous moon would only croon the songs that praised his name. He hoped that soon the cosmic tunes would bring him greater fame. And then the story goes on, and the moon is explaining all the great things that he is and all the great things that he does and how he can change his face and how he can make the oceans swell and how astronauts have danced across him before. And then he gets to the end of the book, and he has this stark realization. This is what It says, He'd boast away and loved to say, I am the greatest light until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight. He saw his pride and then he cried for all that he had done for he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night, a new delight is what he loves the most reflecting light With all his might, the Son is now his boast. So God, I pray for grace each day to find the joy that's true in all my days and all my ways in making much of you. It is in our nature to steal glory from God. We are drawn to self-exaltation. And mankind has been attempting this ever since the garden. You see, Adam and Eve, when they took that fruit, it's not like they just broke some silly little rule. No, they challenged God. And they challenged his authority. They challenged his supremacy. They challenged his glory. What they were doing was trying to dethrone God. And God won't have it. He won't stand for that. He didn't have it then. He didn't have it for Herod, and he won't have it now. And so I promise you, if you do not submit to God and give him glory through Jesus Christ, this will not end well for you. But in God's grace, he intervened through Christ on the cross And he is calling us back to him. And he is patient with us so that we may come to a place of repentance. And at the cross, Jesus, in a shocking light that pierces the darkness, showed us all of his glory. James and John wanted to stand or sit next to him in his glory. And here he is in his glory on the cross. And he's calling us out as mankind was banished from the presence of God at the garden. We have been given the invitation to come back into his presence through Jesus. But you must lay your own pride aside and give God all the glory that belongs to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, Lord, What a stark realization, Father, that I bring nothing, absolutely nothing to the table. I have nothing to offer, Lord, except for what you you have given to me. And so, Lord, what you have given to us and have entrusted us to, Father, would we throw it back at your feet and give you all the glory, Lord. Your word talks about us receiving crowns for that day that Christ will establish our kingdom. And we get this beautiful picture at the end of the book that shows us throwing the crowns down at the feet of Jesus because we know that all the glory belongs to you. We lift up our praises to you, father, as you have resurrected us, uh, just as you have resurrected Christ and those who are in Christ. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.